welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, A Rhodesian Farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The following episode is called Woods Hit Europe. On the 29th of May 1979, Rhodesia became Zimbabwe Rhodesia. For us, this hybrid country, this country stuck betwixt and between, meant, well, marginally fewer restrictions and, of course, the lifting of sanctions. It also meant that travel outside southern Africa was finally permitted for those of us carrying Rhodesian passports. I say marginally because all that actually meant was Greece, Spain and Switzerland. Spain had finally got rid of Franco and likewise Greece had thrown off the rigid moralistic, xenophobic junta. And Switzerland, well, Switzerland was just being Swiss. We used to talk a lot about that lot over there. Well, of course, that lot over there rarely represented the UK and USA, but it also included Europe and other countries over there. To the rest of the world over there, namely UK and USA, we Zimbabwe Rhodesians, as we now called ourselves, still represented a repressive, racist regime. Changing the name of a country to include the word Zimbabwe made little difference to the men in government. It also meant that flights to Europe had to take a very long, circuitous route right around the bulge of Africa in order to avoid hostile airspace. Interestingly, hostile airspace began on the Zambezi and ended in Cairo. My brother Dunk and I were absolutely delighted when my dad very kindly suggested that a trip to Europe would do us some good. Coming from my father, who was an avid, anti-over-there kind of chap, we were highly suspect of this character-building exercise. My dad's memories of his time in Europe post-war wasn't one that filled you with inspiration. I think that my poor, long-suffering brother would have much preferred to have gone with his ex-army mates on a booze-fueled road trip across America or any other country over there, instead of getting strapped with his rather drippy young brother. Okay, I was never drippy despite my father having yelled at me once when I was seen walking around the house with my hands clasped in front of me. You looked like a goddamn priest. For God's sake, walk properly. Walk like a bloody man. 
I never made that mistake again. So, while my brother's army pals, UK passports in hand, disappeared in a cloud of Cadillac dust down Route 66, lesser beings such as we Rhodesian passport holders headed for the liberal backwaters of the Aegean, Costa del Sol, and the less-than-liberal Swiss Alps. In short, Duncan got lumbered with yours truly. And so it came to pass that on the 4th of August 1979, having never left Africa and armed with our 800 US dollars allowance from the Reserve Bank, that's $400 apiece, two huge expandable suitcases donated by our gran, last used on the Union Castle to Southampton back in 1952, according to the many stickers plastered over them, and laden with two dozen extremely semi-precious stone eggs that our worldly-wise travel agent Pam Spicer said we could trade for money. By the way, the very same eggs that accompanied us to Byra a decade earlier, and rather awkwardly dressed in, wait for it, brown slacks, cream jacket, and fucking 70s kipper tie, we left the continent of our birth for the first time. Did we really think people still travelled like that? We embarked on the 22-hour South African Airways flight from Salisbury via Joburg and then around Africa, a fuel stop in Lisbon, and then on to Rome and finally Athens. Naive, idiotic farm kids with zero knowledge of what had happened socially in, in the outside world since sanctions began in 1965. In 1979, Europe was at the tail end of flower power, hippie, pot-smoking, free love. I had recently finished James Michener's epic novel, The Drifters, and imagined myself as some cool, worldly-wise traveller ready to lay my head and my heart on the lap of some LSD-addled Torremolinos angel, disaffected and directionless, according to the magazines of the day. And here we were, the woods ready to hit Europe. (laughs) 
disembarking from the plane in our jackets and ties, we must have looked quite a sight, drenched in sweat from the midsummer Greek heat, and no doubt the laughing stock of the hordes of young, long-haired people hanging around at the airport. Even the phrase hanging out conjured up illicit images of sex and drugs in my naive brain. I'm not sure how old I was in 1979. 17, perhaps. In any case, I was at the age when everything revolved around sex. I thought these hippies were all on pot. I didn't realise that people actually rolled up Turkish tobacco using something called Rizzlers. I thought I could see dishevelled groups in, in frayed cut-off jeans on every street corner injecting themselves with heroin when in fact all they were doing was counting their drachma for an ice cream or a souflaki. Almost immediately on landing and clearly quite mesmerised by the activity around us, we left one of our bags on a bench. Sadly, it wasn't the bag containing the stone eggs. And so, lugging the massive trunks behind us, we began our trip into what can only be described as total farce. My diary is short, brief and to the point. Sunday, 5th of August, 1979. Athens is absolutely fantastic. Porn, in capital letters. The works. It was in Athens that we saw Midnight Express, not the best of films to see when on vacation so close to Turkey. Nevertheless, it would not be illicit drug smuggling, but carnal porn that would come back to haunt us. Having never seen pornography before, well, not openly displayed like this smut sitting snugly between women's wear daily, several Greek newspapers and the International Herald Tribune. And terrified that it might all disappear before our goggle eyes, we quickly stocked up on copies of Playboy, Penthouse, Mayfair, a keyring of a man fucking a woman doggy style, a small priapus with a very large member, and for me, a quietly sneaked-in copy of Playgirl. I was in heaven. I nearly passed out the first time I took a peek at all the naked men. Of course, the stone eggs were still there like a bad smell, unsellable and unloved. Duncan and I did the islands, lugging our cases onto the metro, on and off ferries from Pariahs to Poros and Spezia, on buses and trains, donkey carts, up and down flipping hills and onto flat-topped roofs where we hung out hoping to look like other European hipsters but failing in spectacular fashion. Our worn felskins, shorter than short boxes and check shirts stood out like the lighthouse of Alexandria on a foggy night. You could spot a Southern African a mile off.
From Greece we fled to Switzerland. Staying at the Hotel Torrell on the banks of Lake Geneva. Then on to the ski resort, out of season, of Lausanne. Where we were turfed off the bus for flicking a cigarette butt out the window. Switzerland did not bode well. Still lugging those stone eggs, we traipsed from shop to shop, lists of which had been given to us by Pam the travel agent, and were not only met with a negative response, but with a look of total bewilderment. One Swiss shopkeeper went as far as to take us to his cramped store on the Quai de Berg, on the shores of Lake Geneva, where he heaved open a large trunk filled to the top with sparkling, semi-precious stone eggs. The limp light spilled across the dusty, oval-shaped stones. He ran a long, bejeweled finger over the top of the eggs, revealing their blues shot with gold, rust, amber and turquoise, then wiped his finger clean on a linen handkerchief. The stones looked like a nest of arachnids or evil, winking alien eyes. He shook his head. Alors, pour le mort de Dieu. I have no idea who in Rhodesia gave my name to your fellow travellers, but I simply cannot get rid of the awful things. What did I do to deserve this? He complained with a shrug. And with that, he let the lid crash back down in a cloud of dust as a bony hand guided us out of the shop. In revenge, we both pissed in the pristine lake, hoping to pass on some Bulhazia to the dull, squeaky clean Swiss. A very sad photo shows Duncan sitting on an enormous suitcase by the side of the road. A spectacular chocolate box alpine vista in the background. All we were missing was a hat box. From the glory of the Alps, we moved on to the shithole that was Malaga. The sea was filthy back then, with visible surge floating around. Fat women with massive, hideous dugs hanging down to their waists and awful rough sand on the beach, so unlike Mozambique. My dreams of playing a Hemingway character, lounging on the playa, squirting Rioja from a wineskin into my mouth, were dashed against the Torremolinos promenade. So naturally, we did what all drunk teenagers do. We tried to get laid. Our victims, as my diary recounts, were two German women. As I say, I was at the age when I would bonk anything. Wednesday, 29th of August, 1979. We met the birds who had been making eyes at me on the beach earlier. They're German. Quite nice, actually. 
We never got a fuck out of them because in our broken English, we never knew how to go about it. Well, I, I guess we all have excuses. Mine was a magazine nestled under the beryl, tourmaline, iolite and heliodor stone eggs in the bottom of my suitcase. In frustration, Duncan and I decided to do what all self-respecting hippies did. Shoplift. Something I've never done before and never done again. The target of our thieving was, not surprisingly, porn. Sadly, our suspicious demeanour and slinky behaviour got us caught by the store owner within seconds sneaking between the aisles like evil ham actors in some pathetic panto. My life flashed before my eyes. I imagined Midnight Express, filthy Spanish jails, a life of drugs, hard labour and buggery. Duncan punched. I ran. Behind us, the shopkeeper yelled, Ladron! 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 Stop, thief, thief, ladron! Christ, he wasn't giving up. Fortunately, I managed to sneak between some racks of clothing in a market and cowered down between the tie-dyed caftans and rosaries until the moment had passed. I was never going to make a good thief. Nor a smuggler, for that matter. On our return to Salisbury Airport, those bloody stone eggs still in tow, jacket and tie now stowed away, being as we were worldly wise. We were detained by Rhodesian customs officers and searched. You need to understand the kind of person that worked for Rhodesian customs and excise back in the 1970s. They were generally speaking middle-aged white men with massive chips on their shoulders. They had absolutely zero tolerance or sense of humour, and with faces like slapped asses, tiny pencil moustaches, beady eyes and lascivious looks, they discovered one contraband item after another, holding them up in utter horror. Playboy, penthouse, key rings, statuettes, even a goddamn ballpoint pen that, when shaken, allowed the bathing costume of a woman to fall away. Hardcore, or what? And what have we ya? the man would utter in a voice containing less warmth than that of a serial killer. With sweat pouring down my back, and with much irony, I stared in disbelief at the poster above their heads, it was of elephants around a waterhole with the slogan, Rhodesia is super. Is it? Is it? I thought back to the Air Rhodesia poster competition I'd won so many years ago and stifled a laugh. The word super seemed to sum up the mood. Who in their right minds calls a fucking country at war super? Why is a country super? when even a bloody joke keyring is considered illegal. I watched in morbid fascination as he got closer and closer 
to my stashed away playgirl. How in God's name was I to explain this one to Duncan? A mistake. It must have slipped in on its own. It wasn't mine. I bought it by mistake. It belonged to the German women. Sorry about the dog ears. Sorry about the pages stuck together. By now the inventory on the Formica table was beginning to look eclectic, to say the least. Playboy times one. Mayfair times two. Penthouse times one. Keyring silver pornographic times one. Statuette plastic white pornographic times one. Alcohol, Uzo, Grecian Pillars, 500 milliliter, times one. Doll, Spanish, green, 18 inch, times one. Flick knife, oh, did I mention that? Oh well, flick knife, times one. Stone eggs, various colors and sizes, times one. 24. Ugly kipper ties times three. And then it was over. They pushed my case at me, my dirty secret undiscovered. I was palpably relieved, although the worst was yet to come. Those small-minded customs officials had the gall to write to my father explaining that his two sons had been peddling in carnal contraband. Well, if ever the shit hit the fan, it was then. My dad didn't know what carnal meant. To his mind, it concerned people fucking dogs. What sort of disgusting bastards had he brought up? Is this what you get from those years at school? Peddlers in porn? All I could think was, little do you know. It was way beyond him, and we were way beyond explaining to him that, in fact, these weren't magazines of weird and disgusting bestial activities. He gave us a look of total incomprehension and revulsion before slamming shut the Land Rover door and speeding off down to his tobacco. My final humiliation came when my dad made me write a letter to those customs officials, apologising for my lack of judgement and could they possibly forgive me for going astray? I will never forget that moment and I expect those idiot officials laughed about it long and hard as they flicked my keyring back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Ironically, when my dad went to the Seychelles, his mates asked him to bring back some girly magazines. The last time my father had read a Playboy was in 1965. I still laugh at the memory of him burning the magazines at the back of the house, having realised that porn in the late 70s had progressed to a rather more, how shall we put it, carnal art form. And I still have those wretched stone eggs.
Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.